Hi, my name is Alex Kelly, co-founder of Bright Flag, and this is In-House Outliers, a podcast where I interview those who've taken unconventional paths and challenged conventional notions of how in-house legal should operate. I'm delighted to be joined today on the podcast by Eric Ortman. Eric leads legal operations at Beijing and is one of the most experienced legal ops leaders in the biotech and pharma industries. And as you'll hear, he also happens to be a really nice person. Eric, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for inviting me. Let's start at the beginning, Eric. Where did you grow up? Well, that's definitely the beginning. I grew up in a small town in Illinois on the Mississippi River, just across from very close to St. Louis, a town called Alton. It has a few things of note. It is the home of the gentle giant, uh, Robert Wadlow, the tallest man who ever lived. He He was eight foot 11. Wow. Yeah, he's a big guy. We had a Lincoln Douglas debate and Miles Davis is from there. So uh, it's a great place to grow up. Yeah. Well, that's a town steeped in history. Yeah. Why did you decide then to study at Cornell? I needed to get out of my small town and I wanted to move away. And and actually, I did my first year at Ithaca College. I was planning to be a a music major. And, and, you know, this is going to be a bit of a theme for me through this conversation. You know, I've kind of taken a securitist path to get to where I am, but it's been a journey, you know, and I think that's true for a lot of people. And, you know, I started out as a music major, but realized early on that I wanted to do something else. And, you know, Cornell was across the valley and it was beautiful and it's an amazing school. And I, then I transferred and had a pretty, you know, fantastic four years in Ithaca. It is uh, the most common theme, I think, of the legal operations leaders I've had the privilege of speaking to on the podcast that there is many divergent routes that have led to legal operations. You are not the first musician. <laughs> I was just reminded of Ken Callender, who I had on the podcast recently, who started life as a pilot and oh wow. And, and is now yeah. legal ops. So so it it is something uh, really unique, I think, about the role is that the people come to it from so, so many different perspectives. What led you then deciding to pursue a, a legal career initially? While I was at Cornell, I was trying to figure out what I was going to study. And I actually studied in environmental sciences. And again, part of the securitist path, spent a couple of summers as a park ranger in a national park in North Cascades. And I was thinking that I wanted to get into the law, that I wanted to do environmental law. And you know, ultimately, I ended up kind of moving from the West Coast back to New York where I started working as a paralegal in a large firm at Cleary Gottlieb to see if this was in fact what I wanted to do. I didn't go you know, straight into law school. You know, I just wanted to see, is this the right path for me? What were your biggest learnings from that early experience in Cleary, a really large law firm working as a paralegal? Again, a very common kind of early experience for many legal operations leaders is uh, some experience at some point in their career as a paralegal. What are the things that have kind of stood the test of time or, or that when you look back now were the, the biggest things that you learned from that? Again, I think this is coming from a small town and also, you know, from a, you know, Ithaca is, is an amazing school, you know, you know, Cornell is an amazing school, but you're exposed to so many incredible people, just really, really smart and accomplished people. And I was a little bit awestruck by that, frankly, and a little awestruck by New York City itself. And you start to realize kind of, what's out there for you, you know, and what it takes to get there. 
you know, this is being a paralegal kind of in the, you know, the mid nineties, you know, a lot of discovery work, you know, and bait stamping <laughs> and things like that. But, you know, already there were kind of inklings of kind of legal operations at the time, trying to figure out better ways to do it. And in a lot of cases, the partners and the attorneys were coming to the paralegals for their thoughts, our thoughts on kind of, all right, how can we do this better? How can we be more efficient? It's so true. And discovery in the 90s was uh, a lot more painful and paper-based and technologies oh, yeah. uh, pre, yeah. pre the incredible e-discovery solutions that emerged uh, a decade or so later. What then attracted you to Novartis? After some years in New York, my wife actually got into business school in Chicago at Northwestern. And so we lived there for a couple of years um, where I continued to work as a litigation paralegal. And then she got a job at Clorox in Oakland. And uh, honestly, I wasn't entirely sure what I was going to do. You know, this was the the dot-com era. You know, if you just had a website, like you were a gajillionaire, you know, and <laughs> didn't really have to do anything. And, you know, I was kind of swept up by that and, and wanted to be a part of that. But I was looking around and we drove by this company called Chiron. And I didn't know anything about them. And I looked them up because they had a website and they had a litigation paralegal position. And I applied and the person who would become my future boss, Nancy Koch, also went to Cornell. So that helped, I think, a lot. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that's when I really started my career in legal operations and in the biotech, you know, and pharma industry. And we'll certainly come back to that theme of biotech and pharma and how, uh, your passion for that as an industry to work within. Can you walk us through then how your role evolved over that time uh, with Novartis? Because I know you were there for, for quite a period of time. It was at you know Chiron, and then we were acquired about halfway through my tenure by Novartis. I was there for about 10 years. So a really good stretch. And you know, I think during that time really saw the whole concept of legal operations evolve. We were actually a very litigious company. We had a lot of foundational intellectual property related to hepatitis C and HIV and other areas. And we asserted that technology. And, you know, as a result, we had a lot of discovery. We had, you know, a lot of uh, just, you know, we had budgets that we needed to manage. And so um, kind of managing that and coordinating with our outside counsel really fell on me entirely. So I was very vested in finding better ways to do things. Also, again, this was kind of the, you know, starting in 2000, it's, you know, the concept of e-discovery and collecting people's email and, and um, you know, preserving them and legal holds, you know, this all came into play. So while I was there, all, all of this was new and we were kind of figuring it out. And that really appealed to me, I think, was just doing something completely different. People were coming to me for answers. And I didn't necessarily have all the answers, but I think this is one of the things about legal operations that I love is that it's inherently entrepreneurial. When you're an entrepreneur, you're going to make mistakes, but you're also on the leading edge of things. And I, and that's really exciting for me personally. And speaking of entrepreneurship, what prompted you then to return to college to do an MBA? So this was kind of after the Novartis acquisition and, you know, Nancy, my, my boss, um, you know, she, you know, was encouraging me to go to graduate school to either go to law school or to go to, you know, business school. And, and I'd been talking to her about this for a while and I actually applied to both and I, and I got into some great schools, you know, for both, but ultimately decided to go to, to business school. 
And, you know, one of the things that was exciting about, you know, kind of an aspect of Chiron and, and Novartis was with all this litigation, there was also a lot of licensing. And so I got kind of interested in business development. And so I kind of saw myself maybe going down a little more of a business track. And so, you know, ended up going to UC Berkeley for an evening weekend program, which is, I'll tell you, it's not easy, you know, so you work a full day, then you go to school at night. And at the time I had, you know, that first year I had a one-year-old daughter. And then I think my son was born the night of one of our finals, <laughs> so which I did not attend. <laughs> so I got a pass. I, I had to go and take it a week later. It was a very exciting and a pretty hard road for me those three years, but it was really well worth it because what I learned there and the people I met in business school were, you know, that's been a, you know, phenomenal for me. That's incredible. Family first is something we always talk about here, here at Bride Flag. And I'm glad yeah. Berkeley were understanding and allowing you to, to be there for the birth of your son. But I can't imagine how busy a time that must have been for you juggling your job, doing the MBA in the evening. And I know myself having young children is an incredibly exhausting, exhilarating, but exhausting time for, I'm sure, for yourself and your wife as well. I felt like I was kind of at a point in my career where, you know, in my life where I had things that I wanted to do and I just needed to get it done. So fortunately, my wife was, you know, super supportive during this entire time and my friends and, and colleagues. So it wasn't just me, that's for sure. It then led to a decision to take on a, a very different role at MB Mobile. I think this gets back to the entrepreneurship, you know, thing where during my second year, a friend of mine pulled me over and said, Hey, why don't you come to me with me to this entrepreneurship class? Like, you know what you need to know about kind of biotech licensing. Don't go take that class. Go take this entrepreneurship class. And and I was hooked from the first class. And living in the Bay Area, you hear so many incredible stories of entrepreneurs. And, you know, again, I was at a point in my life where if I was going to do something like this, you know, to start a company on my own with my friends at school, you know, this was the time to do it. And so, and I was in a position where that was going to work, you know, for us. So, you know, instead of kind of staying in the industry, I took a, a, a short hiatus or a couple of years to build out MB Mobile. And I'll tell you, it was a, a really a formative experience. And I'm sure you'll appreciate this, Alex. I mean, starting your company is just this is a massive amount of work. And if you're not doing the work, it's not getting done. You, again, have to rely on the people that you work with. You need to collaborate. You need to, you know, when you have a software platform, you're, you're constantly testing. You have to be so diligent in, in the work that you do. And, you know, you're going to fail along the process and along the way. So, again, it was a brief hiatus for me, but those years have informed everything that I've ever done since and um, was a remarkable experience. And I'm, I'm very pleased to say, even though, you know, I wasn't with the company at the time last year, they actually got acquired. It was a happy ending to that story. So that's great. It's amazing. And certainly something I can obviously relate to Eric. And I think the rate of learning at that point, when you're kind of, as you say, if you don't do something, it doesn't get done. And you're, you're just working so intensely with a tight knit group of people all focused on the same goal and having to learn from mistakes extremely quickly. It's exhilarating. And, and certainly I, I'd agree with you. You learn a huge amount through that and something you're very proud of to see that the company has ultimately been acquired because I know 
people that have played a part in the Bright Flag story over the last almost decade now, they've all played a critical role and, and have been part of that success, irrespective if they were with us for a year or two or have been here for seven or eight years. So it's all part of the journey. And then what pulled you back into the, the pharma space? In short, I think it was <laughs> a bit of dumb luck. And uh, at the time that I got pulled in, you know, things were you know, maybe going a little sideways, you know, with the company, we were kind of struggling a little bit. And right at that time, somebody who I had helped get a position at a company called Onyx Pharmaceuticals reached out to me and she said, hey, Eric, I I was thinking about you because we're hiring for a head of legal ops and we're looking for somebody who has, you know, legal experience, has kind of software, you know, startup experience, and also has an MBA. And there's like, that's, I was like, that's me. I mean, (laughs) like, you know, there's a lot more people like that today. But, you know, some years ago, I mean, that was a pretty small community. So I got brought into Onyx and, you know, just at a really fortuitous time for me. And, you know, just been driving hard ever since. I I've feel so lucky that I'm back in the industry and um, just really excited about the last several years. And Eric, this was back in 2012. So it's like 10 years ago. Yeah. 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 That was a while. And so the legal operations term was not well understood, maybe outside of a small cohort of companies in pharma or in, in really large tech and financial services, but it was not well understood in the legal industry and as you say, I think you were very much a unicorn candidate for the role, having had prior legal ops experience in the industry, yeah. having the entrepreneurial experience, having the MBA and the law firm experience to boot. Like you were the needle in the haystack for that role. And I'm curious, how did you then go about building the legal ops strategy, given all of that, given that this was before clock existed, before uh, there was so much guidance as to how to approach developing a strategy. How did you go about doing that? In part, it was definitely the direction that was provided by, to me by uh, my boss, Perry Goldman, and then our general counsel, Suzanne Shima. You know, there were, I think, a couple of areas to focus for them. One was certainly contract management, which honestly, I didn't have as much experience with at the time, you know, but I understood business processes and was able to kind of solicit feedback from stakeholders and, you know, take what they had kind of built out and make modifications and come up with a a really great process for the company. And one where we were also getting pretty tremendous data so we could take that data and iterate. And, you know, part of selling myself to Onyx and getting the role was to say, you know, listen, I understand business processes. I can map things out. I'm not going to know a hundred percent of what I'm need to do coming in, but I'll figure it out. And I think that's a really important trait for anybody in legal operations too. You know, you're not going to come in and, you know, know everything that you need to know out of the gate. But if you have some good fundamentals and, you know, project management experience is a, is a huge plus too, then you can apply that and learn along the way. I think that's helped me to be pretty successful there. And what's interesting then is you obviously went on to subsequent roles all in in the pharma space at at Medivation and and Ultragenics. I'm curious, how did your kind of strategy evolve or the projects that you decided to focus on differ in those subsequent roles, given they were kind of broadly in the same industry? 
were there any deviations or changes in areas of focus for you? Every company is a little different. So like Metivation was really tremendous because it was total green fields. I mean, they had nothing in place. And that, you know, pertains to e-billing and matter management, uh, contract management, and, and kind of various other solutions. So I got to really build everything from scratch. One of the things that, in, you know, on the contract management side that I was pretty excited about was building a, kind of a, we used a, a, a no or kind of low code platform to build a homegrown solution with, which has the best contract management system name ever. It was called MARS. It was Medivation's Agreement Request System. So MARS, just a, it, people, it, it, the adoption was through the roof and it was really easy to manage. So I, I kind of, I mean, there's a lot of great solutions out there, but I loved my little homegrown solution. And then Ultragenics was a, a little different story. You know, when I came in there, they had some solutions, but they'd kind of failed. So, you know, we had to kind of keep, you know, the, the kind of the old systems on life support, you know, if you will, until such time as we can transition to new ones and a totally different challenge to work through, but we got through it and yeah, got some systems and processes up and running. I think it's also, it depends a lot on the general counsel and what it is their priorities are. Again, a lot of it is often around contract management, but certainly outside counsel management spend and how you manage that, you know, is, is critically important. And there's other areas too, IP management, knowledge management, and really investing in your team. So, you know, these are things that I've kind of picked up along the way. And I think I've I definitely haven't perfected them, but I've done a lot in my time in my current role at Beijing, you know. And looking back now with the benefit of of having been a pioneer in the legal ops space, Eric, and over a decade of experience under your belt, what projects are you proudest of or, or have had the biggest impact from your perspective? That's a great question. There's a couple of things that come to mind. I think on the contract management side, we've had a, a system in place for some years at Beijing. But, you know, you kind of get something up and running and then you immediately have to go into a, you know, a second phase because there's just so much to do in standing up a, a CLM. This last year, we really transitioned to a self-service process for our clinical operations and, you know, working with the clinical operations team who's responsible for site contracting so that we can get studies up and running and drugs to patients so that we can test the cancer drugs that we're trying to get to market. You know, that's incredibly important. And having the most efficient system in place is and process is incredibly important. In terms of the biggest impact, what was most impactful really was the collaboration because we had something in place, but, you know, we took a lot of feedback from the clinical operations team and other team members within legal who were very close to what was going on. And with our clinical trials happening all over the world, we have lots of studies happening in the US and China and Europe and elsewhere. And so really listening to them and developing something that was specifically tailored for their needs and testing it and getting them involved and then pushing out something that everyone felt ownership of and felt really good about, I think is, I mean, that was a very impactful project for us and something that I think we all take a lot of pride in. 
I think Eric, you touched on something there, like ultimately facilitating that collaboration and being the glue that brings together those different teams and enables the business to operate more effectively. What more could you ask for out of a project and an initiative? Technology is only ever an enabler of that. It has to start with that internal buy-in, desire to make improvements, approach to to kind of collaboratively working across different teams to find the best solution. So I think you touched on something there that in my experience, or from my perspective, the making or breaking of any kind of legal ops strategy is that internal motivation and legal ops being effective in facilitating that collaboration between different teams and kind of bringing them together. And I think another important lesson is that, you know, we can make this whole remote thing work and we, we had no choice to. We needed to do this because we had to make the clinical trial contracting process more efficient, but we weren't going to be able to do it, you know, by getting together. I mean, this was, you know, Omicron was on the rise, you know, lots of travel restrictions in place. So we managed to do this kind of all remotely, which was a real challenge as well. But I feel like the work that we did there was the model for kind of future work that we'll already have in process. And I think everybody now knows the value of, of that type of collaboration. You said something to me, Eric, we spoke a few weeks ago, and you said something to me that really struck me. You referenced the fact that you were leading legal operations during Medivation's acquisition by Pfizer. And you mm-hmm. told me about something the CEO said at that time that's always stuck with you and given you a real sense of purpose in your work. Would you mind sharing that with us? Yeah, sure, Alex. So legal operations or any type of kind of business operations role you know, you're not necessarily as close to whatever it is that you're doing. And for us, that's getting drugs to patients. And so, you know, I was trying to figure out, kind of find ways to make that kind of more relevant to me, to make it a little closer. And when we were acquired by Pfizer, David Hung, the outgoing CEO, told this pretty incredible story related to Extandy, which is a treatment for prostate cancer and the drug that, you know, Medivation ultimately was acquired for. You know, and he was talking about the very first clinical trial that was run and the first patient that was actually dosed with Xtandi. This was an older man. He was dying from cancer, probably had a couple of weeks to live. And he started treatment and, you know, it saved his life. And as a result, David was saying how this man was able to not only see his children graduate from college, but they were able to, you know, he saw them marry and have grandchildren, you know? And so this person had a really full life and um, hopefully still has a, a very full life. It's just struck me right at that time. I was like, you know, behind all of that work and getting this, you know, extending to this patient, there were contracts in place. You know, there were contracts getting the sites up and running for a clinical supply chain for other purposes. You know, what if there was a process in place that was more efficient, you know, that could have gotten sites, more sites up running earlier. This could have been several other men's stories. And so it struck me at that moment, just how important legal operations really can be. And it's something that I think about now kind of all the time with respect to kind of all of the work that I do, you know, this really can be impactful and especially in this industry. It's amazing, Eric, and I imagine makes it very easy to kind of get out of bed every day and make an impact and move move things forward when, as you say, ultimately lives can be at stake. And I think I, I mentioned to you and when you were speaking, my wife also works in the fine, in the pharma industry, 
And similarly, during the pandemic, I could see the importance of the work that she was doing and in a finance role in in just facilitating getting medicine to people who are sick. Those kind of personal stories are uh, hugely inspiring. You've now been with Beijing since 2018. And I know that's been a period of incredible growth for the company. And I'm curious to understand how that's impacted your priorities leading legal ops there. When I joined our legal and compliance team in 2018, we were, you know, already a fairly decent sized department. I think I was around employee number 20, but we now have over a hundred people in legal and compliance. And in that time, the company size has grown from a thousand people to over 9,000. And, you know, the thing that I always wanted to experience, you know, again, kind of going back to that entrepreneurship class coming into a company where there's relatively, you know, green fields and building everything from scratch and being a part of tremendous growth. So from that point, I've definitely checked that box. It's been quite a ride, but you know, it's really hard too. Sometimes, frankly, it's a bit of whack-a-mole. You're just trying to keep up with the incredible growth. And I think you have to look at it from a risk perspective. You know, where are the greatest areas of risk and really focus on those, especially when you're either a one-person legal operations team or a relatively small team. You can't boil the ocean. And if you try to do it, you're going to fail. So you have to have, I think, an understanding with you know, with your general counsel and you know with your colleagues and the key stakeholders. Like, okay, this is what I'm capable of doing, but this is where I'm going to need support. In terms of priorities, it's a lot about prioritizing, understanding what everyone else where they see the greatest risk, then getting something standing up, being a little more tactical about it, you know, frankly, for starters, and then you start to iterate, all right, how can we improve on this? So, you know, it's kind of going back to the the contract management system that I talked about and kind of the achievements that we've had on the clinical trial contracting site, uh, side, where we got something in place, it wasn't perfect, but we've gotten to a point where it's actually really good, you know, and that was an area of risk that we really needed to address. So I think that's kind of the approach that I've taken in general, you know, it ebbs and flows, but, uh, you know, I think we've gotten things into a pretty good place. I love the honesty, Eric, of the reality of kind of having a kind of grand long-term strategy versus having to firefight and just deal with immediate priorities that present themselves. And I remember talking to Mary O'Carroll about this, when she was at Google, where Google were the kind of one of the major advocates of OKRs as the, the way to kind of align everybody about your key objectives for the year. And she honestly said, well, those could change month to month or quarter to quarter, just the speed the business was moving at. And I think it's kind of presumably striking that balance, as you said, between the tactical and getting things done that are the biggest risk or the biggest priority, and then iterating on those over time. And as you say, having that shared understanding and buy-in from legal leadership as to what's what's possible. And I'm curious to understand, I think you may be potentially the best positioned person in the industry, given the breadth of your experience to answer this question. How do you think a legal ops role in a pharma company or a biotech company differs to one in another industry like tech or financial services? I'm not sure I'm the best position person uh, to to answer this question. There are some really outstanding people out there doing great legal operations work in the pharma and biotech industry. I think what it comes down to is really kind of focusing in, you know, what is your industry all about? And what are the uh, you know parts of that operation from a legal perspective that are vitally important? 
But there's going to be certain things that are, you know, in common, but there's also going to be clear differentiators. And for us, that's, you know, that's a lot around the clinical trial, you know, kind of support. I mean, there's other areas too. For example, we have a drug that's in the U.S. called Brukenza. And, you know, kind of, we work very closely with the commercial teams to support their operations. So, you know, there's that part. I mean, but that's, you know, there's some commonality there, I think, you know, with other industries. It comes down to what is the core need? What is the product? And then you really orient yourself around that. It's amazing to me. I kind of have a certain perspective on this, given we have customers here at Bright Flag across a variety of industries. And there are kind of core pillars from what I can see to most legal department strategy that are required, like contract management, e-billing and matter management. And then there may be other aspects that are a greater priority based on the nature of the legal work, the nature of, of support the business needs the scale of a compliance program. It certainly seems like pharma and biotech are a real growth space within legal ops from what I can see. G- kind of going back to our conversation before about the kind of sense of purpose you have working in the space and the impact of your work. Can you tell us a little bit about Pan Mass and why it means so much to you both personally and professionally? Well, the Pan Mass Challenge is a phenomenal event, and it is something that's been really special to me the last couple of years that I've done it. It's a charity bike ride that's in Massachusetts, and there's a number of different routes. It's a two-day event that's held in August where you know cyclists ride from Boston to Provincetown out on Cape Cod. The route that I did this year, it was 160 miles in two days, so it was, it was a haul. Uh, <laughs> And you don't just go and do that for no reason. And fortunately, there's a great reason to do this. The the proceeds go to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, which just does phenomenal work in terms of cancer research, but also patient support, market access, all kinds of things to help people, you know, who are dying from cancer, the support that they need and, and support for their families and friends as well. The PanMass Challenge raises millions and millions of dollars every year. It's totally from riders. And I had had a friend who, he works in healthcare consulting, and he's been doing it for years. And, and you know, it had been on my list, and I'm like, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, yes, I'm going to do this. And I, I hadn't done it. And then we had a, a leadership team meeting out in, in Boston right around the same time as the PanMass. And I decided, I'm, you know what, I'm going to stay the weekend. I'm going to go and do this. and um, what an experience. First of all, I got a ton of support from my friends and colleagues. So thank you um, again. And, the, you know, they asked me, you know, what is it like to do that, the ride? And I think they're expecting me to talk about the ride itself. You know, just, you know, how do you how do you ride so many miles? And it's it's not about the cycling. It's about the people. You know, the people that you meet are so inspirational and you see them literally from mile zero until 160 they're every mile of the way and ringing their cowbells and they're, you know, they're people who are cancer survivors or they lost someone to cancer or, you know, they're battling cancer. You know, I make a point of talking to people along the way and there's so many people that stick out in my mind. There was one team that I spoke to kind of during the ride, Team Quinspiration. It was a team that a mother put together for her son, Quinn, who died of cancer at the age of eight. We kind of were biking together and then we got into a a kind of a rest stop and she was showing me videos and pictures of her son. It was really just an incredibly moving experience. And so it's about the people. And and again, 
you know, it makes everything that I do at Beijing and all these other companies just so incredibly personal and relevant. You know, my life has been touched by cancer. You know, at Medivation, I lost my boss to pancreatic cancer. I just found out that an uncle of mine has cancer. We all have these these touch points. So doing this and um, you know, is is so important. And I was so excited when they they you know they do this big check presentation. They presented it was a $69 million check to the Dana Farber Cancer Institute. They can do so much with that money. It's just a wonderful event and uh, just a really special thing to do. As you so eloquently said there, so many people's lives are touched by cancer in some way, shape or form. I lost my own mother uh, to cancer when I was in in my teens and she had been involved with uh, a charity in in Ireland along with my dad and coincidentally my father-in-law which provides cancer support to patients so something close to my own heart and and a huge admiration for you and in all the work that you've done and and how you bring that energy then to to work every day as well not not just in in the charity work that you've done but in in your work at Beijing and all your prior roles so thank you for sharing that with us are you planning to to do it again yeah, it's it's definitely in the cards. Uh, I live in California, so it's it's not exactly the easiest thing to do, but you know, it's just such a an, a tremendous event, and I do want to make this just something that I I keep on doing. There's other great events out there like it, Pelotonia that a colleague of mine does. It's in Ohio, and uh, there's another one. Oh, guess what? There's a uh, there's an event in San Diego. It's Petals. Oh, shoot, I can't remember the name, but anyway, there's a lot of great events out there. I think. You know, if people can find things like this, and you know, it doesn't have to be about cancer. There's a lot of great causes out there. You know, find what motivates you and go and do it. You know? Yeah, one one hundred percent. My dad has MS, and we did a step challenge last year. He walked fifty kilometers in the month of May, which for him was no small feat. He raised a lot of money in the process. As you say, it's just a great experience, as much as. Uh, as the, the impact that fundraising can have. So thank you so much for sharing that. Final question, Eric, what do you enjoy doing in your spare time? Well, there there is a lot of cycling. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think in, in, in seriousness, there was, there was a lot of cycling during the pandemic, you know, just to get out of the house. But, um, you know, since, you know, things have eased a bit, you know, honestly, it's been a lot more about just focusing on family. My daughter is now a freshman in college. My son is a sophomore in high school. He's on the junior varsity basketball team. They had their first win this weekend. So go Dons. And they got a big tournament. So honestly, it's it's a lot more about that stuff. Yeah, which is great. And kind of doing more things with family. So, you know, that's obviously kind of a, just a wonderful thing, too. Like myself, Eric, I think any time I'm not working, most of it is is with the family. The kids are at a slightly different stage. But uh, I think as we spoke about yeah. it, yeah, time passes quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, It does. It really does. Yeah. When I dropped my daughter off at uh, college, I was like, oh, wow. I, how did that happen? You know, but yeah, it's all good stuff. Absolutely. Well, Eric, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I r- really enjoy catching up. Well, thanks again, Alex. It was really a pleasure. And um, yeah, this was great. I'm Alex Kelly, host of the In-House Outliers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Brightflag, an AI-powered legal operations platform where corporate legal departments gain visibility into operations, maximize productivity, and engage with outside counsel strategically.
If you like this episode, then you can find more information in our show notes. If you want to hear more, then you can also find more episodes at brightflag.com forward slash legal hyphen operations hyphen podcast. Thanks again for listening to the In-House Outliers podcast. We'll see you again next time.